Welcome, everyone, to a special interview edition of Monday Match Analysis. It is the first time uh, that we have a player on the show, something that in the future I, I see this becoming a part of the channel, and right now we're just easing into it, but what a start this was with Noah Rubin. Noah Rubin is a Wimbledon Junior Singles Champion, a USTA Champion, the founder of the Behind the Racket Instagram account, co-host of the podcast, The Coffee Cast, also an All-American with Wake Forest, and currently the world number 168 uh, men's tennis player in the world. That's a long resume. Noah, thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me on. So uh, I'm, we're reaching you, I understand, at the Binghamton Challenger. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. You know, unable to play Atlanta due to just a really tough uh, – Cut off this year, but no, happy to be in Binghamton, where my sister is an alumni, and oh, it's always it's an easy drive from my house. That's always nice, uh, but the the weather hasn't been right. It's been raining over there. Yesterday was torrential; not one ball was hit <laughs> um, outdoors. So hopefully, hopefully it'll be okay today. But it definitely it cooled off the temperatures, which I can't complain about. Yeah, that's that's good. This weekend was a was a scorcher on the in, on entire East Coast. Let's get into oh, yeah, uh, un, unreal. I went to a Yankee game. It probably wasn't the best call. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> definitely not. You have to stay in, indoors. Yeah, I didn't I didn't get the memo. Uh, so so this kind of all started pretty pretty organically. I I tweeted out uh, that you know I I'm I've been well documented. My favorite player, David Ferrer. Uh, I am. I'm trying to get over the fact that I don't get to watch him anymore. Um, I tweeted. Yeah, I'm looking for a new favorite player, and I I think that that you're my guy. You know, you're David's height. You're a New Yorker like me. Um, I think I think you're perfect. And then um, that's that's how this kind of started. Um, so I've <laughs> I've um, seen you on other interviews also kind of throw in David Ferrer. So are we kind of on the same we wavelength? With the with the Ferrer love, we we definitely are. I'm not sure if I can muster up the same grit as him. That's always you know that's the plan, of course. But I mean, God, what a tough legacy to try to uh, try to you know move forward with. I mean, he he had an unbelievable career. But again, no, you know, if there's anybody I'm going to look up to for just day in day out effort, you know, he's he's a guy. Right, for sure, kind of a, a role model in in grit and and doggedness, and it's something that I guess you you probably need when and I'm I'm shorter than you, Noah. Uh, when you're when you're a smaller player, um, you know you kind of have to make up for it in, in other areas. How do you how do you kind of internalize um, the the height thing? You know how how do you look at at yourself? Do you do you kind of come to terms with the fact that it may be a disadvantage, or do you say, hey, like you're a really quick player around the court. You're one of the fastest guys out there. You kind of tell yourself, well, I get these other attributes from it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think, yeah, you know, I make jokes that, um, you know, the low center of gravity helps on different surfaces, such as grass and clay. And honestly, I think my, my height combined with my athleticism definitely translates fairly well on all surfaces. Um, you know, what I have to sacrifice for that is insane effort day in, day out. I'm not going to get those quick matches with, uh, 15, you know, plus aces. It's just not going to happen for me. So, you know, I, I found love in running down and chasing tennis balls, uh, and my body's taking, taking the, uh, the sacrifice for that. But it's, it's something that I've dealt with for so long. 
Um, and, you know, for being the average height, basically, for Americans, uh, I feel extremely small in the world of tennis. I mean, <laughs> you know, I don't know how what they're eating, but, again, like, you didn't get the memo for uh, the heat. I didn't get the memo for growing. So uh, it's something I've dealt with my whole life, and I, I, I'm used to it at this point. Day-to-day, I mean, talk about kind of the, the body ailments, the the suffering in the gym that, that you have to go through. I mean, what, what are you doing today, for example? And how does your body feel? Yeah, body doesn't feel great. Um, I, actually, I, I was working on a uh, caption for one of my Instagram pictures, and it was basically making fun of how I feel um, during the first few days and weeks on hard court. I mean, the body's just in so much pain when you start sliding on hard court and you feel it, the shaking in your bones, and uh, it's just, it's one of those really, really tough feelings. And I don't even know if the human body is, is meant to slide on concrete, but this is what we deal with. So, you know, today I'll, I'll get some work done, some treatment um, by a physio. I'll do some of my own yoga, um, probably a little strength workout um, to get the body feeling good and ready for tomorrow. But, yeah, it's most likely I'm going to be in pain when I step on the court tomorrow. <laughs> so so the switch to hard court is tough. Um, I guess you're, you're with you're with Rafa Nadal. In, in, in that struggle, but I guess with everyone else on tour as well. Let's get into the Instagram account. Uh, behind the Racket, it's something that uh, really, I'd say, separates you from a lot of other players. Um, wh- how did this uh, come about, and why did you decide to start this Instagram account? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it started, you know, I had I had notions that I really wanted to make, you know, my mark on tennis and, and, and you know, brand myself, but it really happened more organically than that. I mean, my friend basically came up to me and said, Noah, I, I, you know, he plays a little bit of tennis, but he's mostly a follower of. And he's like, I can't keep listening to the same interviews. I don't want to hear about your forehand or backhand because, one, if I watch the match, I have a pretty good understanding if you played well or not. And, two, I just don't care enough. I want to hear about the outside stuff. I want to know why you're doing certain things, why you feel a certain way, what is happening outside of the court that's making you act this way and what's happening in your life. And then, I, you know, once all these ideas were, you know, flushing through my head, I started to realize that nothing like this has ever happened before. And it's insane. I was looking, I mean, as soon as I came up with the name and, and as soon as I was going through, there was nothing, nothing I could find in the world of tennis um, that was anywhere close to these ideas. And I was like, you know, and I'm, all for being the pioneer, but I was a little upset that this wasn't something that anybody has heard of before. And that's why I really wanted to make sure that I put, you know, tremendous effort into getting this out into the public to really making this almost uh, a household name of sorts. And, you know, I, I really wanted to bring this new level of love to the world of tennis. I wanted to break that stigma, stigma of mental health within the world of professional sports and especially tennis. And also have um, players have a platform to share the story and fans a platform to follow their story and, and be a part of their journey a little bit more. So that's kind of the motivation. I really appreciate that about mental health. Such an important issue. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a good host, though, because I didn't actually describe what the Instagram account really is. I'll, I'll give you the platform. Okay. What's your favorite behind the racket post so I can give you a chance to kind of describe uh, what it's all about? Oh God, that's that's tough. I, I mean, honestly, the one I, I I did with Tennis Sangren was 
was a truly, I mean, they've all been extremely um, eye-opening and I've been very, I want to say fortunate, even though these are really tough stories, I've been very fortunate that they've opened up to me. Um, you know, Tennis Sangren talked, spoke about his father um, passing and what that meant to him and, and the struggles that came with it. And, you know, I'm looking him in the eye and he's, this is the first time he's sharing a story and he thanks me after for allowing him to share that story with me. And, you know, that's the stuff that, that stays with you forever. I mean, th these are the things that everybody, you know, holds back. But, you know, here's somebody that was opening up to me and really, really telling me what was going on in their head. And, you know, I, I now feel the responsibility, the true responsibility to allow other people and players um, to do that as well. There's absolutely most definitely not enough storytelling in tennis and i think that's kind of what you saw and that's uh what you're what you're trying to reverse oh without a doubt i i think there is god uh, almost a loss at, at the train of thought between you know the player and the fan and and the p and the problem is the marketing it is that basically i mean there, there's definitely a lot more attempts in the past couple of years but you know if you're not in the top 20 in the world, you're not getting the publicity needed. And that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm trying to show the non-glamorous side of tennis as well and show how tough it is to really make it in the sport and giving people outside um, the top 100 as well an opportunity to share their story. You know, I'm going to get guys inside, but I want the guys outside to say, this is what I'm dealing with and how it differs from somebody who's 20 in the world. This is why people should, should care about me too. Uh, I want to ask, is 100%. this... Is this something that is a big part of the plan, life after tennis? Or, or are we probably going to go the media route? Yeah, I mean, honestly, and, and this is kind of more the, the superficial part of Behind the Racket. I do want Behind the Racket to become, you know, this incredible platform to really to, to go through the treacherous road of mental health and how we can change it and and allow people to open up but the, the superficial aspect is once i started this i found out that it really encompasses a lot of my passion involving art involving commentary broadcasting involving fashion involving marketing there's so much that goes into it that i, I i've always had a passion for and now this is encompassing everything and allowing me to not only do it on on my place and within my time and with my ideas that you know this is this is my idea and i and i can see it you know hopefully come to fruition and it's really exciting and and, and hopefully it keeps growing and you know I, I see it i don't see it ever stopping it's also a podcast sort of affiliated with the account called coffee uh the coffee cast it's co-hosted by uh, yourself and mike cation and i think a a common topic on that is just life of a tennis player kind of outside the top five well actually it's really more the top one percent uh, so you can get as personal as you'd like with this it's completely up to you but if you're preparing someone for a life on tour outside let's say the top 150 so a, you know life largely on the challengers tour or, or whatever it be uh, what are the what are the main bullet points there that you need to prepare people for that they might not realize uh, you know, I think there's now recently been an understanding that you're not making money. <laughs> and I think the two points besides the financial aspect 
One is the loneliness, and two is the lack of success. And these are things that you can't prepare for. Um, for the most part, if you're top 200 in the world, even top 300 in the world, you've been fairly successful as a junior, as a, as a collegiate athlete, in, on your team, whatever it was before pros. I'm, I'm pretty certain you've had some minor, more than average success. And you've, you know, you've had a team around you or, or you've been with friends. Now you get to the pros. You might be traveling on your own for eight weeks at a time. And you may lose, I don't know, 60, 70% of the matches you play. I mean, these are the things that people don't understand. And no matter the success you had as a junior, the transition to the professional tour is something not spoken about. And that's why I think there needs to be some kind of giving back program where pros can really um, talk to, whether it's high schools, colleges, academies, whatever it is, and say, this is what truly takes place on the professional tour. And I'm not deterring you away from playing professional tennis. I just think you need a little bit more of a realistic idea of what goes into trying to break through into the top 100 and beyond. And I don't think that was explicitly told to me or 99% of the other people on tour because it seems like a shock for everybody. And it's just something we deal with. And there are definitely some upsides to you know what we do for a living we still play a sport for a living but at the same time it's a a lonely dark road for for a lot of it to give the people context noah uh you were a usta national champion so that's kind of the 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 junior tennis league in the united states uh you go to wake forest you're the number one rated freshman you make the national championship uh, as a freshman so that's you know, a, a tournament with both sophomores, juniors, seniors. So, but by a lot of metrics, first of all, I mean, you're doing mostly winning. And uh, I mean, you're really the best player, one of the best players in your generation uh, in in the country. So that's really interesting. And I, I have actually haven't heard that as a response uh, to get used to, to, to less success as part of that adjustment um, to the uh, professional tour. But, you know, there's, yeah. oh, you can, you can go ahead if you have something. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, I just want to say it's one of those difficult routes. And again, people don't understand. You go from a lot of success and a team to nothing. And you go at the top of the game of juniors playing junior grand slams to futures, which is like, oh, God, that's, that's a graveyard for tennis players at times. And, and yeah. it's just something you have to get used to. But no, keep going. Well, what do you think financially? Um, if what it, is there a solution here? I mean, we, we talk about it all the time and, and everyone agrees. I mean, let, let's be real. I mean, you're number, you're number 168 in the world right now. If you're the number 168 soccer player, baseball player, hockey player, football player, w- without exaggeration, you're a millionaire. Uh, so what do you think the problem is in tennis? I'm sure you've put a, a lot of thought into this. And are there solutions or is this the nature of an individual sport? So a lot of it is the nature of an individual sport. Um, I think a lot of our problems stem from traditionalists, and believe me. And all I, you know, I preface everything with, I love the sport of tennis, so everything that I say, take it with a a grain of salt that I'm trying to see this sport evolve and not die out because I do see some issues that I see our sport going in the wrong direction. And it's a problem. And, you know, I've made some mock drafts of what I see can be potentially, you know, 
a better system for everybody. But it, it's a very tough sell, a very tough sell. But, you know, I'm looking at World Team Tennis, and I'm like, God, you know, I talked about this on the podcast, and I've never seen so many people smile before. I've never seen fans getting so involved. I mean, this is a fairly successful year for World Team Tennis, I, I, I think. And everybody's really, really happy watching, playing, all of it. So I think we have to, one, shorten the season. The season's way too long. Um, I think we take away probably October, November, give us an extra two months of vacation um, and preseason. And that will aid the fans to be more involved throughout the year because there's less time to watch. And it will allow that uh, players to actually, you know, get some rest and prepare the body for the next season. So now, especially if you're outside the top 80 in the world, you feel like every year is just connected. Uh-huh. You know, you finish you finish your match in November, whatever, your last match. You have one week off for Thanksgiving. And then you do a few weeks for training. And then you're back in Australia. And it just keeps going. And you feel like you never truly have a break. And that's, that's one of the major issues. But in, in my head, I think we have to produce a system um, that has a, an atmosphere, a team atmosphere, but at the same time allows you to get ATP points through team play. And then with that, with team play throughout the year, the ATP points you accumulate will allow you to play um, Master 1000s and Grand Slams. And honestly, I you know, I don't know if there would be 250s and 500s in my system right now, and I believe that we could find a way to incorporate the people that get those tournaments together into the new system. But the thing is, people remember the big tournaments. I mean, you know, we don't even really know who plays in the thousand, in the Masters thousands, who wins the thousands. We really only remember the Grand Slams. I mean, these are the tournaments that get the money. These are the tournaments that get the publicity. It's a, it's the Grand Slams, and then maybe some of the thousands. So I do think we need. Shorter seasons, we need shorter matches. I, I think the matches are still too long. That um, promotes tanking because players are tired and you know they, they feel like they can give up some points. And also we need smaller things, like we need to get fans involved. We, we should have cheering throughout the match. Um, we have talking. We should have more you know promotion. I should look like a NASCAR driver with all the stickers on my body to try to make money. We should have festivals and kids' days. Um, you know, these are... You know, this should be after work days. It should be on weekends. You know, ways to get people involved and make it efficient for them to be able to promote the sport of tennis. Because right now, it's one of the toughest sports to promote, and it's the least fan-friendly sport. And I think, I think there are ways to change it, but I don't know if the people at the top want to hear that. Right. So it would be interesting to know, I mean, if you if you started from scratch and, and you took tennis for, for the sport that it is, but uh, completely completely rethunk the system i mean to be honest with you i wasn't expecting such a uh such a such a well thought out reconstruction there uh so are you doing i actually have a google doc um with a minor draft of how it looks with uh you know four leagues north america south america europe and then asia australia and then within those four leagues you have divisions uh three divisions and this will allow for salaries um and Basically, top 300 players in singles uh, for men and women and top 150, 200 for doubles men and women will get a salary and hopefully make a better living than they have now. And there will be team division championships and world championships, but this will also allow them to get ATP points to play thousands and grand slams. And again, tough sell. It's just something I thought out of and want to put on paper, but 
I do think there is a need for a team competition. So yeah. we'll see. Appreciate you sharing that. I, I would say, would you agree that the only way something that um, that drastic changes is if the people on top uh, start losing money, right? Because until that happens, there's really no problem, no incentive for anything to change. I mean, the people uh, on the bottom can can you know they can they can publicize their issues, but if the people on the top are still getting rich, I I, I don't know if if anything would really change. You know, I I agree with that. I know it's pessimistic, a little pessimistic. Fifty percent level. The rest of it is, you know, and this is nothing against anybody personally, um, because there's so many moving parts and so many moving people. So if anybody's listening to this, I hope you don't take it personally. But if there were dreams, true aspirations to be better and and having not looking through that small lens, seeing into the future and saying, you know what, if we do this now, yeah, maybe the money okay is okay for me at this moment, but if we do this now, sacrifice a year or two, uh, the money can be incredible. See, I just think there is this short-sightedness and this antiquated notion that it's okay right now, so let's stay where it is. But, I mean, if you look at other businesses and other entrepreneurs and, and all these other CEOs, you know – they, they're, they're always trying to get more fine with being content and there's other people that want to push it forward and keep yeah. seeing improvement and evolution and i think that's our issue our issue is that we're stagnant right now and we don't have enough people seeing the bigger picture gotcha yeah uh so let's slightly shift gears i'm so but also not not quite because i want to stay kind of on on the financials to a certain extent how big of an advantage is it uh, so I don't know what your team looks like, but your team compared to someone in the top 25 when it comes to uh, physios and psychologists and the kind of the entourages that they're able to, uh, to to bring. I'm wondering how much of an advantage is it for for the players on the top and how much does that play into the fact that a lot of the same players are winning? 100%. I mean, you know. Once, you know, Federer wakes up and gets his uh, toes massaged by two separate people, it's, you know, there's going to be an advantage to that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I'm not traveling with anybody. I can't really afford it. I have my father, you know, that helps me out. I have an agent who helps me out and, uh, and some coaches back home every once in a while. But for the most part, I'm playing on my own. I'm doing what I can now. Um, you know, I used to travel with a coach, but it was, it was really just too expensive. So, um, I'm at a point where I'm basically doing it by myself, and that's how I'm finding my happiness and, and financial stability. But, you know, for the people at the top that can really do what they want, and, and Karen Koshinov explained that for him, it, it takes about four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars um, mm-hmm. on a year um, to work with his team. I mean, that's, that's a number that I don't even make in two years right now. So to... You know, he makes enough money that he can do that in a year-to-year basis, and that's why they... You know, can can have that stability right now. There's so many moving parts for me, and I have to take care of so many things. Uh, it's a very difficult situation, and makes the road to the top um, tough. And that's why it, it's so hard to break through. Is the most important thing for you, like, is is what kind of makes the difference? Is it qualifying for slams? Is is that kind of the when it comes to on the court success? What really makes the difference from a player uh, around the 200s, 150s range? You know, I've recently, you know, looked into deeper of what makes, you know, 
the situation better for myself. And at this point, you have to put happiness first. And I think the player that's on the court that's ready to compete every single point, you know, for the most part, the challenger level is going to be the person that comes out on top. Um, you know, we're all very similar in talents and stuff, and it's the person that's going to fight every point. So that's kind of what you have to deal with. There's so many other moving parts that you have to put that to the side and say, Am, is my body in, you know, somewhat good shape to compete, and is my mind there and going to be there every single point? I think that's what's going to make the difference um, to break the next step, you know, learning what system and, you know, environment you need to be in that right state of mind. So was playing Federer at the 2017 uh, Australian Open, was, was that fun? <laughs> That's an understatement. I mean, you know, a lot of it was uh, a little bit of a blur, but you yeah. know, it was an incredible, incredible moment, um, you know, to be on the court, you know, sadly, you know, giving up a few set points that I had in the third set. But, right. you know, to, to be a, playing against one of the best ever of all time was an incredible opportunity. And, and it knows, you know, it makes me feel that, you know, if I'm there, if I'm happy, if I'm ready to compete, um, I can compete with anybody in the world. You're you're actually an interesting part of history in that because Federer, I think, went into that tournament, the 17 seed, and people weren't expecting much. Little did we know, he was at the peak of his powers and played one of the best tournaments of his life. Did, did you understand that after playing him, how, how much in form Roger Federer was at that point? I, I did it. It took a few more matches, and I remember actually I won a challenger a couple weeks later, and I remember watching him play Nadal, and I was like, I played him a few rounds ago, and now he's going on to have an insane year, and this is when people were really starting to talk about how old he was, and and that he just couldn't make it back, and he's like, okay, watch me, and then yeah. he had that insane year, and to be a part of that history is, is pretty incredible. Yeah, you, you played him closer than Nadal played him at Indian Wells. How about that? That, that is something to be said for that. <laughs> All right. So um, let's get, before before we go, let's get a quick U.S. Open prediction just because for the fun of it, if you do that. U.S. Open prediction. What are, what are you looking for? I'm looking for, for a champion. You can go if you want. You can do a men's champion and a, and a women's champion. Ooh. I really could see uh, Serena battling again um for a title uh, you know you know Halep mm -hmm. was playing great tennis in the finals um I see a Serena I could see a Coco Goff again making an incredible run um but I would I'm, I'm going to choose Serena for this one and then for men oh god there's a there's a couple um it's really it's it's tough to take Djokovic out of out of the works I mean tough to say that he you know won't be the front runner for for the for the title. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about who else, I mean, God, you know, maybe maybe Kyrgios can make a push forward and and Anderson with the big serving day, but it, it should be a really exciting U.S. Open this year. Absolutely, and um, I I hope you are in that draw. I think we're all pulling for you. Best of luck um, this week in Binghamton, and probably. Uh, safe to assume one of your favorite parts of the year. You're in the States. You're playing on hard courts, although it's awful on your body, we've learned. Uh, but but good luck in, in the next couple of months. Thanks so much for having me again. Thank you for coming on.